Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, Michael Hogger discusses giants, and Larry Stamm looks at the Feast of Israel. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Watchmen on the Wall has been bringing sense to the nonsense for 89 years, and with your help, we'll continue to bring clarity to the chaos. Would you please consider giving a gift in honor of Anniversary Month? If you've been blessed by the programs, resources, or conferences, would you please partner with us with a financial gift? You can give today by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can support Watchmen on the Wall by visiting our website, swrc.com. When you give your gift during this anniversary month, would you please share with us how the Lord has used Watchmen on the Wall and Southwest Radio Ministries in your life? Thank you. Ministry friend and author Larry Stamm is back with the latest installment of the teaching series, Jewish Roots of Christianity. Today, he teaches on the Feast of Israel. Shalom, friends. Larry Stam here. So glad you're joining with us as we continue our study on the Jewish roots of Christianity. Today, we are talking about the Feasts of Israel. In our last session, we introduced briefly the Feasts of Israel. We looked at Leviticus 23, verses 1 and 2, where the Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the Feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. We spoke about the fact that The word feasts in Hebrew is the word moed, the Hebrew word moed, which literally means appointed times. These feasts of Israel were Israel's corporate quiet times. It was times when ancient Israel would abrogate all of their daily responsibilities and stop. They would take time and focus on God, who he was and what he had done for them. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to briefly unpack each of these feasts of Israel. We are going to talk briefly about Messiah's fulfillment of those feasts because we had mentioned in our last study that the feasts were signposts, and those signposts were saying loud and clear, this way to Messiah. The first feast we're going to talk about is Passover. If you would look with me at verses 4 through 8 of Leviticus 23, Passover. We read about Passover in verses 4 through 8, where the Word of God says, These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover, and on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days ye must eat unleavened bread. In the first day ye shall have a holy convocation, ye shall do no servile work therein. Now, if you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. I want to read a few verses from Exodus 12 to unpack a little bit more about this very important feast of Passover. Exodus 12, verse 3, the Word of God says, Speak ye unto all 
the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him take it to his neighbor next to his house, and take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses, wherein ye shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with the bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat it not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus ye shall eat it with your loins girded, your souls on your feet, and your staves in hand. Ye shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, thus saith the Lord. So, Passover, the story of the Exodus, a picture of deliverance from bondage. It was a physical picture of a spiritual reality, a future reality found in the person and work of Jesus. Remember, the Israelites were called and commanded by God to take a spotless lamb to roast it whole without breaking any of its bones and to apply its blood to the doorposts of their homes. And when the angel of death saw that the Israelites had applied in faith the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their homes, he would spare them from physical death. He would, as we say, pass over. That's where we get the name Passover. In Hebrew, the word is Pesach. That's a type and shadow, ultimately of the substance of the person of Jesus. As John says in chapter 1, verse 29 of the Gospel of John, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So just as the ancient Israelites were commanded by God to place the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of their homes to escape physical death, so we as human beings, to escape spiritual death, are called to apply in faith the blood of the Messiah Jesus to the doorposts of our hearts. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. The death of Messiah is the fulfillment of the feast of Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says, Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Following that Passover, you have a seven-day holiday called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where we eat nothing that contains leaven. Leaven frequently in the scripture is a symbol of sin. Remember Jesus is sinless. The holy, perfect Lamb of God offered himself as a sacrifice. So we see the sinlessness of Messiah as the fulfillment of the Old Testament Feast of Unleavened Bread. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is the fulfillment of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where the Word of God says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God 
in him. Now we come to the Feast of Weeks, seven Sabbaths and a day after Passover is the Feast of Weeks. We know it better as Christians as the Feast of Pentecost, which means 50th in the Greek. It was the Jewish Feast of Shavuot. It was the wheat harvest. And according to Jewish tradition, this was the day that Moses received the oral law on Mount Sinai. Pentecost, also the day the church was born in Acts chapter 2, a Shavuot unlike any other previous or future. Leviticus 23, look now at verses 9 through 14 as we briefly look at the Feast of Weeks. Verse 15 of Leviticus 23, we read, And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, ye shall number fifty days, and ye shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. Ye shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. And ye shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish, of the first year and one young bullock and two rams, they shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord with their meat offering and their drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of sweet savor unto the Lord. Then ye shall sacrifice one of the goats for a sin offering and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And ye shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be a holy convocation unto you. You shall do no service work therein. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. The Feast of Weeks is fulfilled in Messiah through the specific outpouring of the Spirit of Messiah. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, you remember the Spirit fell. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, we read, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. In Hebrew, we would say the Ruach HaKadosh. And they all began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then Peter preaches a sermon. 3,000 get saved. The birthday of the church has occurred. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So the Feast of Weeks, also known to us as Pentecost, the Hebrew Feast of Shavuot, is fulfilled in the outpouring of the Spirit of Messiah in Acts chapter 2. Next, the Feast of Trumpets, otherwise known as Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish Civil New Year. Turn now to Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 23, we read, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speaking to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein, but ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So the Feast of Trumpets begins what we know in Judaism as the ten days of all. Jewish people will seek reconciliation with others. They'll give alms to the poor. They'll confess their sins to God and really search their heart, preparing them for the most holy day on the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. Many unbelieving rabbis, by the way, believe that Messiah will come on the Feast of Trumpets. Actually, a lot of Christian scholars and Bible teachers also believe prophetically that the second coming of Christ will occur on the Feast of Trumpets, the Jewish New Year. And we see the fulfillment 
of this Feast of Trumpets in the second coming of Messiah Jesus. We're very familiar with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, where the Word of God says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So the second coming of Messiah is the fulfillment prophetically of the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. Next, we have the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur. Religious Jews simply refer to it as the day. It is certainly a day of reckoning when forgiveness is sought and Jewish people who don't yet know Jesus Christ go to the synagogue, confess their sins, and pray that God would inscribe their name in the book of life. Moses refers to the book of life in Psalm 69, 28. I encourage you to study it out on your own. The Apostle Paul referred to the book of life in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, and the Lamb's book of life is also referred to in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. The Day of Atonement is all about redemption. The fulfillment of the need for sacrifice is found again in the person and work, specifically in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, we read these words, So Christ, or Messiah, was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is fulfilled through Messiah in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, our great high priest, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And finally, the last of the three fall feasts of Israel is the Feast of Booths, otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a feast of remembrance and rejoicing in God's faithfulness and in God's provision during the wilderness wandering of Israel. Their 40 years in the wilderness, God commanded the Israelites to build and to live in huts tabernacles for one week each year, and the sukkah booth would be a reminder of their 40 years in the wilderness, living in temporary dwellings where God was faithful in his provision and in his protection. Turn with me to Leviticus 23. Let's read about the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. In verses 33 and 34, Leviticus 23, we read, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. Skip down to verse 39. We'll read through verse 43. The word continues about the Feast of Booths. Also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye shall have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath, and ye shall take on you... The first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days, and ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord 
Seven days in the years it shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. We find the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths actually in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, which is where I want to conclude. Zechariah talks about the rest and reunion we will have with Messiah during the millennial reign of Christ. The Word of God says in Zechariah 14, verse 16, this during the millennial reign of Christ, when Jesus returns. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And that shall be that whosoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt shall not go up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them, seeth therein, and in that day there shall be no more Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. There shall be rest and reunion with Messiah during the millennial reign of Christ. God tabernacled with us with the ancient people of Israel in the wilderness. He certainly tabernacled with us on this earth when Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And I mentioned from Revelation 21 that in glory, ultimately, God's people will dwell with God and He will dwell with them. God will tabernacle with us. Friends, appreciate you taking some time as we've unpacked the Feast of Israel. Next time, we're going to begin studying the Trinity in the Old Testament. And until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Thank you, Larry. Our website, swrc.com, now has over 900 items designed to educate and encourage you in your walk with Jesus. Books and DVDs, all found at swrc.com. Your favorite authors and teachers helping bring clarity to the chaos with free shipping on all orders over $100. SWRC.com. Jewish Roots of Christianity by Larry Stamm is one of those resources you'll find at SWRC.com. The book, complete television series on DVD, and complete audio series on CD are all available at SWRC.com or by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. A free resource I hope everyone will sign up for is our Moment of Prophecy e-newsletter, which is delivered to your inbox each week with messages from Dr. Larry Spargimino and the latest on new resources and conferences. Sign up today at swrc.com and start receiving a Moment of Prophecy e-newsletter. Oh, and speaking of conferences, did you know that we are just over two weeks away from the Fort Wayne, Indiana Prophecy Conference? 
April 22nd and 23rd. This conference will feature the lineup of Jeff Kinley, Michael Hoggard, Kamal Salim, Dr. Kenneth Hill, James Collins, Larry Spargimino, Dr. Douglas Petrovich, Larry Stam, and Micah Van Hus. Registration is free, but seating is limited. Visit swrc.com and click on Events, or you can register by simply calling 1-800-652-1144. The Fort Wayne, Indiana Prophecy Conference, April 22nd and 23rd. Staff Evangelist James Collins welcomes Michael Hoggard back to the program now to discuss something many of us are fascinated by, giants. The giants of Genesis 6 were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, there's much debate as to the identity of the sons of God. Some believe they were fallen angels who mated with human females. These unions resulted in the offspring, the giants. Some believe the sons of God were men descended from the godly line of Seth. So who were they? My guest today is Pastor Michael Hoggard, and he's produced a DVD titled Giants for Those Who Don't Believe. Pastor Mike, welcome back to the Watchman on the Wall. Uh, It's good to be with you again. Well, Genesis 6 speaks about the sons of God and giants on the earth, and that's a passage that most pastors today won't touch. Why do you think there's not more teaching about this subject from the pulpit? I think that, number one, a lot of pastors across America don't like to be embroiled in controversy. I'm a minister, and I've been through this before. When you start preaching weird things from the pulpit, some people just give you the eye, and then some people just get downright festered, and they just leave, and no pastor wants that. So it's part of the supernatural part of the Bible, which is nine-tenths of the Bible, in my opinion, that a lot of pastors just don't want to deal with. But I think also there's a lot of misunderstanding. It really took me deciding to go to the Scriptures alone, not the Book of Enoch, not mythology or fables or anything like that, but going to the Word of God itself to find biblical answers about who these giants were, what they were, what importance it has in doctrine and prophecy, and how they got here. Now, there are two views that are most held about the sons of God in Genesis 6. Would you explain those views? The two views are that the sons of God were the offspring of Seth, or the righteous people, in other words, men began to call upon the name of the Lord, and then the unrighteous or the marked offspring of Cain. The daughters of men were the children of Cain. So that's one opinion. But number one, it doesn't have any biblical witnesses to it. There's no scripture that says that. Number two, it doesn't answer the question of where these giants came from, how they got so big, how they were able to build walls and monoliths the way we see all over the earth. So the second opinion is that the sons of God are exactly what the Bible says all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the sons of God are of the angelic realm, be it they are evil angels who left their first estate according to Jude. We know 1 Corinthians says that they have a celestial body, and that celestial body has seed. So we know that they fell from heaven, they saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and fair, and they made marriages with them. An interesting thing, Brother James, when Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man, and he mentioned that in the days of Noah they were marrying and giving in marriage. And the only reference to marriage 
In the days of Noah, according to Genesis 6 and 7, were the marriage of the sons of God and the daughters of men. The Bible specifically said that they married them. They took wives of them. So those are the two theories that are about, and I believe that the sons of God were the angelic realm. Doesn't this whole thing really go back to Genesis 3.15, Satan wanted to corrupt the seed of the woman? Yes, I absolutely believe that's part of it. And something we didn't speak about earlier was the fact that the 12 spies brought back this huge cluster of grapes. So somehow, some way, the giants developed the technology or the process of somehow hybridizing this normal cluster of grapes to this humongous cluster that had to be carried by two men. So it appears to us that they were corrupting all flesh before the flood and that they were also involved in it after the flood because Genesis 6 says, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. When the Bible speaks about Noah then being perfect in his generation, it wasn't necessarily speaking about his moral character it was referring to his genetic makeup not being corrupted, right? The word generation is derived from the word genes, and genes are the DNA, the seed. And so Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and I would assume their wives as well, were probably the only people left on earth that had not been corrupted in their genetic line. So I'm correct to understand that God really sent the flood to preserve mankind, not to destroy it. God specifically said in Genesis 6 that the purpose of the flood and the purpose of the ark was to preserve seed. God's going to preserve the seed on the Just the way God has preserved the seed of the Word of God, God has preserved the seed both of mankind and of all the beasts of the earth by what he did at the flood. You touched on this in the DVD. I remember reading the Guinness Book of World Records and Ripley's Believe It or Not when I was a kid, and I remember the tallest man in recorded history was Robert Wadlow, who I think was 8 foot 11 inches or so. But he didn't have the strength of the giants in the Bible, so that's what I wanted to ask you about. Biblical giants were extremely strong and fierce fighting men, correct? Yeah, Wadlow was a good-natured guy, but he was extremely lanky. And he was so weak because of his height and his weight that he had to wear leg braces to hold him up. And it was one of those braces that caused an infection that eventually killed him. He was 23 years old and still growing. Had he lived, he might have even reached 10 or 11 feet tall. You can get a copy of the DVD Giants, for those who don't believe, by Pastor Michael Hoggard right now by calling 1-800-652-1144 or order online at swrc.com. This is James Collins reminding you that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We have a number of resources I want to make you aware of today. Jewish Roots of Christianity, the book, complete television series on DVD, and complete audio series are all available when you call 1-800-652-1144 or by visiting swrc.com. We also have available Michael Hoggard's DVDs on Giants. Order these DVDs when you call the toll-free number 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. And as always, you can order online swrc.com. Tomorrow, Larry Spargimino and Ken Ham 
we'll share how to once and for all end racism. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for 89 years by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.